Laura, how are things going in Austria? They're good. They're really good. Although I do miss the hot girl summer in New York. How do you say hot girl summer in German? Is it hot Fräulein summer? Maybe heiße Mädchen Sommer. It sort of depends on whether the hot is referring to the the summer or the girl. Both. But it has to be both. The heiße Sommer, heiße Mädchen. We'll take it. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. On Thursday, the Supreme Court wrapped up its term, issuing opinions in two cases related to election law. Both decisions split the court along ideological lines, six to three, with conservatives in the majority. The opinion in Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee ruled that Arizona laws invalidating ballots cast in the wrong precinct and barring collection of ballots by most third parties did not violate the Voting Rights Act. And the opinion in Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta ruled that a California law requiring nonprofits to disclose their major donors is a violation of the First Amendment. That wraps up the first term of a 6-3 conservative majority and Justice Amy Coney Barrett's first term on the bench. Prior to Thursday's decisions, analysts had largely seen the court as avoiding a hard right turn, with more unanimous decisions and idiosyncratic splits than expected. Today, we're going to take a look at what the data can tell us about the ideological direction of the court, and we'll dig into some of the specifics of the term's major cases, particularly on election law. So first, we're going to talk to 538 contributor Laura Bronner, and then later, ABC contributor and law professor Kate Shaw will join us. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you. So what data do we rely on to get a a sort of quantitative picture of the ideological direction of the Supreme Court? So there's a bunch of data, mostly the way that justices decided each of these cases. The most commonly used are the Martin Quinn scores, which scale these justices on one dimension, which is generally considered the left-right dimension. You can also look at how often each justice agreed with each other justice. You can look at how often each justice was in the majority. And you can also look at the percentage of each case that was decided unanimously or that was decided particularly closely. Later on, we'll also have other data looking at which decisions were conservative or liberal and by issue area, and then we can look at that more holistically. But right now, those are the main things we have. All right. So we're here at 538. There's data for everything. Give us a picture of what this past Supreme Court term looked like from what the data can tell us. So there's a 6-3 conservative majority now, but in a lot of ways, it's quite similar to the 5-4 conservative majority that existed before. It's a very conservative court. Decisions like the ones you mentioned on the Voting Rights Act or on union access to workplaces, for example, made that clear. But also both of those are issues on which the court has ruled in a conservative direction in the past. One of the main differences when you look at the data is actually, and it's kind of paradoxical, we see more splits among the conservatives. So splits between, say, Kavanaugh, Roberts on the one hand, Alito, Thomas on the other hand. So if you think about it, it actually makes sense. It's easier to see these ideological differences among the conservatives because they no longer need to vote together to win cases. And in particular, we can see that conservatives disagree on the pace that they want to move the court to the right. So now that we're seeing clear splits within the conservative majority, are we able to sort of rank the justices in terms of who's most conservative? Just from an outside perspective, observing the court, I think it's pretty clear that Alito and Thomas 
are the most conservative on the court in most situations. But the newer justices, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Barrett, what can we say about their ideological positioning? That's basically what the Martin Quinn scores have. They have Thomas and Alito sort of on the far right of the court. They have less to say about the four justices, Gorsuch, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. The scores of those four justices are all a lot closer together, and the confidence intervals around the scores overlap to some extent. The order that the scores have them is Gorsuch to the right, and then Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts. But the uncertainty there means that it is possible that that's not the exact right way to think about it. Are those four justices in the middle of the right-left spectrum? And then let's also take a look at the liberals. How do they rank after this most recent term? It's difficult to say because what's in the middle of the court as it currently exists isn't necessarily the middle of the ideological spectrum. So Kavanaugh is currently estimated to be the median justice on the court, and Roberts is very, very close in terms of the ideological position. But neither of them have moved to the left at all since the last estimate last year. So the court itself has just shifted to the right, which is understandable given that Ginsburg was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. And so the center of gravity has changed. But that doesn't mean that the justices have changed position. And when you look at the liberal wing of the court, those three, they do vote together a lot of the time. Their agreement scores are sort of around 90%, which is very high. You do see that Sotomayor is seemingly a little bit to the left of the other two, Breyer and Kagan, but they do vote together much more than they vote with any of the conservatives, which is to be expected. And they're also in the majority a lot less, which again is to be expected given that they're in the liberal minority. I mentioned that for many court watchers, there seem to be more unanimous opinions and more idiosyncratic splits, particularly amongst the conservatives and also amongst the liberals, than you might have expected. Does the data back that up? To some extent, yes. So you can see that the liberals do vote together more than they vote with any of the conservative justices. That's basically what you would expect. But you can see also that Thomas votes less frequently with, for example, Kavanaugh and Roberts than Kavanaugh and Roberts vote with each other, or Barrett votes with Kavanaugh and Roberts. So some of those splits are visible in the agreement scores and also in the number of times that each justice is in the majority. Thomas, for example, and Alito are a lot less than Kavanaugh and Roberts are. One of the things court watchers have pointed out is that certain decisions this term, including high-profile decisions like the Fulton decision on Catholic foster agencies and the NCAA decision on student-athletes, were actually unanimous. And that was, to some extent, unexpected. And some have written that that shows that the court has transcended partisan divides or ideological divides. There were about 44% of the decisions this term were unanimous, and that's pretty much in line with the past 10 years. So the last three years actually had quite a low fraction of decisions that were unanimous, I think in the 30s. But over the past 10 years, 44% is pretty much right where you would expect in terms of unanimity. So I, I don't think that there's that much data backing up the idea that this is a particularly unanimous court. Yeah, I mean, it's important to point out here that we're looking at overall data and that oftentimes what contributes to the narrative is more high profile cases. So are high profile cases being decided by a clear conservative liberal split or by a unanimous decision? And that is maybe going to impact people's perceptions of the court more than some of the lower profile cases that don't get a lot of attention. 
And also in this case, looking at this aggregate data, at least at this point, we can't yet say which parts of the law the court is moving, particularly in one direction or another on. Before we wrap up here, I'm curious, we got some sense of Barrett's ideological orientation, as you mentioned, in her first term. How much do we expect this data to change going forward? Like, this is the first term of a 6-3 conservative majority. Do we see that people are pretty consistent from their first term on, or should we expect these things to evolve? We have seen justice behavior change from the first term and later on. For example... In Kavanaugh's first term on the court, he actually agreed as much with Kagan as he did with Gorsuch. But in the, by the second term, you could see that he agreed much more with Gorsuch, and that's pretty much where he has stayed, much more than with Kagan. So there are ways in which justices do change their behavior to some extent. I think it's less commonly does it reflect a shift in what they believe, and more commonly they're just sort of like finding their footing and they're figuring out how they feel in all these cases. One important thing is that a lot of the cases that were decided this term were selected before Justice Barrett was on the court. And so that's something that now that the cases that the court has picked for next term might give us a pretty good sense of the direction in which the court is heading. And they've already selected cases on abortion, cases on gun rights. So we could expect that there are going to be quite some hot button topics that the court is going to be deciding on next term, that this term they didn't realize that they would have the 6-3 majority yet. All right. Well, we will keep tracking the data. Thank you so much for now, Laura. Thank you so much. Laura Bronner is a contributor here at 538. Up next, we're going to hear from law professor Kate Shaw. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. 
Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Now that we have a sense of the court's ideological orientation overall, let's dig into some of the specifics of the cases this term, in particular Thursday's decisions regarding election-related law. And here with me to do that is ABC contributor Kate Shaw. She's a professor of law at the Cardozo School of Law and co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. Welcome back, Kate. Thanks, Kaylin. Let's begin with the case out of Arizona, known as the Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee. So Republicans in Arizona passed laws that require all ballots cast in incorrect precincts to be discarded and then banned third parties like campaign workers and community members from collecting ballots and delivering them to polling places. This is sometimes known as ballot harvesting. The Democratic National Committee sued, alleging that these restrictions adversely affect minority voters. The laws were originally upheld in lower court, then overturned, and now the Supreme Court has upheld them with a 6-3 split along ideological lines. So, Kate, what was the court trying to determine in this case specifically? Well, essentially, whether these two Arizona laws violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act, right, from 1965 is the single most important piece of voting legislation, pro-democracy legislation that the country has ever known. To roll the history clock back a little bit, the 15th Amendment is added to the Constitution in 1870, and that purports to prohibit denying or abridging the right to vote on the basis of race. But for about 100 years, that's basically an empty promise until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 actually reiterates the prohibition on racial discrimination in voting, but also creates enforcement mechanisms, right? So gives actual ways to get into court to challenge the denial of the right to vote. And the two big provisions in 1965 are Section 5, which basically subjected some states to a specialized procedure whereby the federal authorities had to approve any changes in voting procedures before they could go into effect, and Section 2, this nationwide prohibition on racial discrimination in voting. So in 2013, the Supreme Court essentially struck down Section 5, right, this preclearance requirement that apply just to some parts of the country. So the part that was at issue in yesterday's case was the last big remaining part of this landmark piece of legislation that, as I said, really was responsible in many ways for bringing about a genuine multiracial democracy. So the Supreme Court hasn't had a lot of Section 2 cases in the post-Shelby County era. And pre-Shelby County, Section 5 was sort of where a lot of the action was. Section 2 is what remains. So it has decided some cases involving things like redistricting, so-called vote dilution claims, but not a case involving the denial or abridgment of the right to vote through restrictions like the two that you just mentioned, this out-of-precinct policy and the prohibition on ballot collection. And the district court here initially upheld these restrictive voting laws. The Ninth Circuit reversed and, you know, sort of found, look, this out-of-precinct policy results in voters of color, in particular Native American and Latino voters, having their ballots discarded at a two-to-one rate compared to white voters. Um, and also this ballot collection prohibition bears very heavily on voters of color and disproportionately heavy, heavily on voters of color in Arizona. And so held that both of these requirements violated Section 2. So the court here, in a pretty sweeping opinion by Justice Sam Alito for himself and the other five conservative justices, said, no, these laws don't violate Section 2. They may even burden, disproportionately burden, voters of color, but they're not bad enough to violate Section 2. And essentially, so what the court didn't do is to say no law violates Section 2. The court purported to 
leave intact the prohibition on racial discrimination in voting. But what it did was to really ratchet up the difficulty of successfully making out a case, right, that there has been a Section 2 violation, so successfully challenging a state's voting law, basically said, we have to look basically in future cases, lower courts have to look at all of these factors, like what other ways to vote does a state provide? Arizona, the opinion says again and again, actually makes it pretty easy to vote. You can vote by mail, sort of setting aside the fact that for a lot of residents of Arizona, it's not so easy to vote by mail if you don't have reliable mail service and you don't have a post office nearby. But because there are lots of ways to vote, according to Justice Alito, these two restrictions weren't enough to constitute a violation of the Voting Rights Act. The court also said some things that I think are quite significant about the importance of a state's interest in preventing fraud, which had been the sort of purported basis on which Arizona enacted these laws. And of course, a lot of these restrictive voting laws are being enacted ostensibly on the same logic. And the courts seem to say that's an important state interest. And even in the absence of real evidence that it's a problem on the ground in this state, that can justify states implementing restrictions like these. I want to dig into some of the arguments here and then talk about the broader implications of today's ruling. So first of all, the two laws that are in question in Arizona are not unique to Arizona. There are other states that ban voting in other precincts or having third parties collect ballots and things like that. In fact, some states like Vermont or Delaware that you don't think of as particularly conservative don't count ballots that are cast out of precinct. One of the reasons there is because you might end up voting in an election, for example, that you aren't qualified to vote in, right? Like if I go 10 blocks over in New York City, I might be in a different congressional district and therefore have a race on my ballot that I can't actually vote in. So there are other states out there that have these restrictions in place. Where is the line in terms of what restrictions are okay and what restrictions aren't okay now that the court has given this opinion? Well, it's not entirely clear. It does matter what other states do. So how much of an outlier a practice is, I think, will be an important factor in a court's analysis of the permissibility of a restriction or a regulation under the Voting Rights Act. So the court said that, you know, these are not really outlier practices or regulations in Arizona. And so how common they are is something that is going to matter in a court's ultimate resolution of these future challenges. So that does suggest there's going to be this kind of like one-way ratchet quality to future litigation and, you know, legislative action in this sphere. So if a bunch of states move to enact pretty restrictive voting laws, they're going to be easier to defend because they're happening en masse as opposed to in isolation. And there's another part of the opinion that I didn't mention that in terms of where Justice Alito lays out some of these factors. And one of them, in addition to kind of how common or unusual a regulation is, is how much it differs from the basic situation on the ground in 1982. So as I mentioned, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, but amended in significant part in 1982, actually in response to another Supreme Court decision. So in a 1980 Supreme Court decision, City of Mobile versus Bolden, the Supreme Court held that in order to show a violation of Section 2, you need to be able to establish basically discriminatory intent, not just that a voting practice disproportionately harmed voters of color, but that it was intended to do so. And Congress responded pretty decisively to rewrite part of the Voting Rights Act to say, no, all you need to show is that the effect is discriminatory as opposed to the intent is discriminatory. So that's why 1982 is an important date here. And Justice Alito said, look, you know, we're going to see how different access to the ballot is under whatever regulation we're looking at from the access that existed in 1982. And there wasn't a ton of vote by mail in many states in 1982. And so that's a baseline that's going to be great for states because so long as they're not rolling things back to a pre-1982 state of affairs, 
they're going to be in a pretty good position defending their laws. Now, this is not the only factor that Alito identified, but it was an important one. So, so I think it's right to the extent that so there's this conservative, backward-looking quality to that part of the analysis, but also the sort of the comparator dimension, what are other states doing, is going to be something that I think is going to redound to the benefit of states. Now, if there's real outlier restrictions that are passed, I think plaintiffs are going to have some good ammunition from this opinion to say this is not the sort of thing that other states are doing. And for that reason, the state should have to work harder to justify it. But so long as they're kind of moving in lockstep, which in this wave of restrictive voting legislation that we've seen since January in a number of states, there's a lot of similarity and overlap. I think the states are going to be much better able to defend their laws after this decision than they were before. I want to read from the opinions today that really gets at this question of how much a law can adversely impact minority voters without being deemed illegal or unconstitutional. So here's a quote from today's opinion. The racial disparity in burdens allegedly caused by the out-of-precinct policy is small in absolute terms. Of the Arizona counties that reported out-of-precinct ballots in the 2016 general election, a little over 1% of Hispanic voters, 1% of African-American voters, and 1% of Native American voters who voted on election day cast an out-of-precinct ballot. For non-minority voters, the rate was around half a percent, a procedure that appears to work for 98% or more of voters to whom it applies, minority and non-minority alike, is unlikely to render a system unequally open. So essentially saying, this doesn't seem like enough of a disparity to violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Then this is from the dissent, seemingly directly countering that argument. Quote, today, the court undermines Section 2 and the right it provides. The majority fears that the statute Congress wrote is too radical, that it will invalidate too many state voting laws. So the majority writes its own set of rules, limiting Section 2 from multiple directions. Wherever it can, the majority gives a cramped reading to broad language, and then it uses that reading to uphold two election laws from Arizona that discriminate against minority voters. I could say, and will in the following pages, that this is not how the court is supposed to interpret and apply statutes. So essentially, it's an argument about, is the court allowed to see some disparity and say that that disparity is not big enough? How is the court going to determine what is big enough to violate the Constitution in the future? I think that the portion of the majority opinion that you read, right, that talks about the two to one disparity, both not being in relative terms large enough, and the fact that it's only, you know, 1% for these voters of color and half a percent for white voters, not being in absolute terms large enough are two of these factors that Alito in the majority opinion points to. And I think that Kagan is right to point out that there's nothing in the Voting Rights Act that suggests that only the disenfranchisement of significant numbers or percentages of voters in particular groups will rise the level of violating the Voting Rights Act, right? So two to one is, I think, you know, a pretty large sort of relative number. And in a very close election, I mean, you guys are the data guys, but like Arizona was really close in the last presidential election. So like a 1% difference in, we're talking about, you know, a lot in many states, the presidential election was decided by a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of votes. That's a non-trivial number of votes. So in terms of the potential consequences, I think Alito is a little hasty in suggesting that this is all trivial, but Kagan's point is a deeper one about the statute, right? The statute contains a prohibition on the denial or abridgment of the right to vote on the basis of race. And that doesn't seem to allow 
on her reading of the language of the statute, this gloss that Alito offers, which is the denial or abridgment of the right to vote, even on account of race, is okay, so long as we're not talking about an enormous group. And I think she thinks that for a court that purports to be a textualist court, now Alito isn't really an avowed textualist, but everybody else in the majority says the way we interpret statutes is by hewing very closely to their text. There's nothing in the text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that says anything like what Justice Alito reads it to mean in this opinion. So from here, do we expect that there is going to be future litigation that tries to nail down exactly what is too much? And is there any indication of what it could be in the majority opinion that we saw today? I think that for advocates of voting rights and litigators who have been and will continue to challenge some of these new and some longstanding state laws that restrict the right to vote, all is not lost. Section 2 remains a part of our law. And Alito does say that this kind of totality of the circumstances test, which is in the statute, remains the test. He just offers a bunch of additional overlay on top of the totality of the circumstances. Again, these factors that I think are very favorable to states defending their voting laws. But I think where you can show a substantial disparity, so I don't think Alito makes an absolute pronouncement that two to one is not sufficient. I think maybe if you had two to one, but where the absolute numbers were greater, that might still be able to at least get a hearing in a court. I'm not sure what the ultimate outcome would be in a lower federal court or the Supreme Court, but it seems to me that remains very much a possibility, certainly a disparity that is greater than two to one in terms of the disproportionate burden on minority voters that a voting restriction imposes outlier or unusual kinds of voting restrictions that are not commonly in place in other states. Rick Hassan um, has written about this a good amount, but part of there was some concern on the part of some voting rights advocates about this challenge. Because these are not so unusual as voting restrictions go, that doesn't mean that they're not problematic and meaningful for people whose right to vote was denied because of one of these two laws. But there was concern that with this newly constituted, very conservative Supreme Court, these fairly borderline Arizona laws might be the occasion the court would use to really ratchet up the difficulty of making out a successful Section 2 claim. And indeed, that is what we've seen. So I think that there are other more serious voting restrictions that states have enacted, again, within the last six months or so. So I don't think anyone should be prepared to say that all of those survive under this new opinion. But I do think it absolutely makes the work of voting rights advocates much harder. The second election law decision that came down on Thursday was Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta, the Attorney General of California. The court split again along ideological lines in a 6-3 ruling that charity organizations in the state would not have to disclose their major donors, citing that mandating companies to release identifying information would be a violation of the First Amendment. So, of course, the First Amendment is what was being debated there. What are the arguments on either side? So these charitable organizations basically argued that this kind of compelled disclosure violated their and their donors' First Amendment rights primarily to associate, right? So in addition to speech and religion, the First Amendment protects the right to associate. And the logic or the argument here is that by mandating this kind of disclosure, there's going to be potentially a chilling effect on donors' willingness to give money because they do not necessarily wish to be publicly associated with these organizations, although they may support them. There's also the possibility, and there was some evidence introduced at trial, that donors whose identities are disclosed by virtue of this requirement may be subject to harassment or reprisal potentially even threats if they take unpopular positions or support unpopular causes. And all of these effects, the organizations argued, meant that this requirement violated the First Amendment. 
So California, for its part, basically says, look, this disclosure requirement is actually not a public disclosure requirement. It was a requirement, basically, that these charitable organizations doing business in the state of California just report their major donors to the attorney general of California, basically for anti-fraud and corruption purposes. Like, So think about if you're holding yourself out as a nonprofit that does credit counseling for low-income people, but all of your major donors are credit card companies, like maybe there's some concern that fraud may be afoot. And so the attorney general might want to investigate an organization like that. So that's the kind of logic that the attorney general, like the state of California, offered in defense of this requirement. And one thing that sort of complicated this case is that although in theory, at least, these were confidential disclosures to the attorney general. There was a good amount of evidence that California had mistakenly disclosed on a number of occasions the identity of some of the donors that it collected pursuant to this regulation, and that that's how some of the harassment that there was evidence of came about. Yeah, I think this was seen as conservative court basically sides with wealthy donors. There were some amicus briefs in this case from, for example, the ACLU, the NAACP, progressive liberal causes that also thought that this was a violation of First Amendment freedoms. So is this more complicated than it appears at first blush? What's going on there? You're right that there was kind of a cross-ideological coalition of amicus briefs, one filed actually jointly by the ACLU and LDF, the NAACP-LDF, right, in support of Americans for Prosperity. You don't typically see those organizations as fellow travelers on the same side of a case. And I'm not sure I completely understand the decision by the ACLU and, and LDF to file this amicus brief. So the big kind of precedent here, actually, on which Americans for Prosperity heavily relied in the opinion to a degree did, as well as a case from the late 1950s, NAACP versus Alabama, in which the Alabama state chapter of the NAACP raised a First Amendment challenge to an Alabama law that required it to disclose its membership lists. And the argument that state chapter of the NAACP made was that, look, our members are going to be in physical danger if they are known in the late 1950s in Alabama to be members of or supporters of the NAACP. And the court did uphold, the court sustained that challenge, right, sided with the NAACP in this case on the grounds that there was a very real threat of harm, reprisal, harassment, and that there was not a sufficiently compelling justification that the state of Alabama had offered to justify that kind of burden on First Amendment rights. So the organization, the NAACP at least, has a track record of taking the position that under some circumstances compelled disclosure requirements unconstitutionally infringes speech and association rights. So this is in some way sort of a straight line from that case. I mean, I think there is, of course, an important distinction in the kind of state interest that can be articulated. Alabama didn't really have one. California has one that in other contexts, the court has credited as compelling. And so you mentioned this both is and isn't a campaign finance case, right? On its face, it's about charitable organization donor disclosure. So it's not as a technical matter, right, about campaign contributions. But you're right that it is absolutely a campaign contribution or campaign finance case in that, particularly in a post-Citizens United era, the main mechanism by which, in the federal system at least, we regulate money in politics is through disclosure. So there are other, we still limit the amount you can contribute directly to campaigns and PACs, right? So there are limitations that remain intact, but they are very few and who knows how much longer this court will allow them to stand. But what the court has always said is that robust disclosure requirements are perfectly constitutional under the First Amendment. And in fact, they do the work, but in a constitutionally permissible way that other kinds of regulations of money and politics said that they were trying to do, but the court found that those justifications weren't sufficient to 
justify the burdens on speech rights that these kinds of limitations on contributions and expenditures impose. So the court says in Citizens United, look, we understand there's fear of corruption and capture, but there's a way to to address that, and that is through disclosure. So we're going to know where money is coming from, where it's going, and voters can track influence in the political process and cast their votes with full information about at whose behest candidates and elected officials are working. So the court has really, and, and has doubled down on that in a, several subsequent cases. And some of the reasoning of this opinion, I think, calls very much into question how committed the court is to those prior statements about the permissibility under the First Amendment of compelled disclosure in the campaign finance context. And so I think that to the extent that there are opponents of campaign finance regulation who have had disclosure in their sites basically since Citizens United, I think there's a ton of new ammunition that this opinion provides that's going to really support a number of new challenges to campaign finance disclosure laws. So these were the two final cases of the term and important to how elections essentially are conducted in the United States and perhaps therefore a bit more political and possibly partisan than some of the other cases, although there were a number of notable cases that were decided this term. So prior to Thursday, there were a lot of readings on the court this term that said, actually, this 6-3 conservative court is more liberal than you might have expected. Were those readings too short-sighted? Do those final two cases upend that reading? Or is this 6-3 conservative court more liberal than you might have expected? I would say it is more incremental than you might have expected. So it hasn't gone big in creating upheaval or major changes in the law in a lot of areas. But I do think that it has moved the law in subtle ways. And I think that the fact that this conservative court is, this is a metaphor I've used before, but it's clearly on a path of some sort. And I think the question was just whether it's taking, so I'm in New York City, like, is it it taking an express train or are we taking a local train, right? Like, the destination is, I think, relatively clear. Some of its specifics, I think, remain to be seen, but it's going to move the law in a decidedly conservative direction. But whether it's going to take the express train there or the local train there, I think wasn't totally clear. And I think this term had a lot of evidence that we were actually going to be on the local train, for example. So there was, you know, a big case that was a showdown between religious liberty on the one hand and LGBTQ rights on the other hand. And there was a real question about whether this court that has a very expansive conception of religious liberty was going to formally announce that freedom of religion under the Constitution was a higher value than any other constitutional value or right. So whenever there was a clash with something else, religious exercise won out, and the court didn't do that. In fact, the court actually unanimously, although with a few different writings, sided with this Catholic Social Service Agency that challenged a Philadelphia non-discrimination law that it didn't want to comply with in its certification of foster parents, right? It didn't want to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. So the court, including its liberals, sided with the Catholic Social Services Agency in a very, very narrow opinion that basically said the court's existing precedent, which was protective of religious liberty, but also said the government could enact generally applicable laws that might even burden religion a little bit. But, you know, lots of people are burdened by laws and we sort of have to live together in a pluralistic society. So the court purported to uphold that precedent, but to say that it just didn't apply here. And here, because this Philadelphia law in question contained the possibility of exemptions, but they wouldn't grant an exemption to this agency, the law was impermissible. In that case, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, which was the issue of the Catholic agency, whether they had to work with same-sex couples in screening potential foster parents, the liberals were on board. 
I think that the way that that was perceived when the decision came out was that this is Robert's grand plan as chief justice to make the court feel more legitimate to the broad American public after some pretty rancorous confirmation hearings. And now that it is a 6-3 conservative court, does that seem like what is going on? I think that is going on on Robert's part. I think both the kind of rancorous confirmation hearings, the court being at the center of a lot of political debate, right? There are ongoing hearings happening right now, right? That Biden's commission on the Supreme Court is considering the question of Supreme Court reform. So I think I can well imagine Roberts wanting a lot of unanimous or near unanimous opinions to issue from the court, maybe to take the wind out of the sails of of all of that. So I think that probably is driving Roberts. I'm not quite sure it explains the liberals' decisions, you know, in a number of these cases to go along with that plan. I mean, they're all committed, I think, to the integrity of the institution, but it may just be that they are concerned about other areas of law, the liberals being, of course, Justice Stephen Breyer, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Elena Kagan, that they're concerned enough about the need to stitch together a coalition of moderate justices for future cases that they are willing to go along rather than, again, scream their dissent. Because Fulton could have been a 6-3 opinion in which the three of them said the court says it is adhering to precedent, but really it is fundamentally changing our law and elevating religion to this, what is sometimes referred to as this kind of most favored nation status, that religious entities and organizations will always be able to get exemptions from generally applicable laws, and that's a sea change. So they could have said all that. Instead, they said nothing. They joined the Roberts majority and they didn't, none of them wrote anything separate. You know, we talk about public opinion all the time here at 538. To what extent are Supreme Court justices swayed by public opinion? They're not impervious to it. You know, they swim in the same waters as the rest of us. You know, look, there's tons of literature on this. I think that for what it is worth, my own view is that they try not to be too far ahead of or to lag too far behind what they perceive to be the broad consensus. But they're not spending a lot of time sifting through public opinion data in the way you are. So I think that there are probably different answers for different justices. But I do think that they kind of inhabit information ecosystems. And I think different ones. I mean, you can see on display, Justice Alito gave a speech before the Federal Society last fall in which much of the rhetoric really echoed a lot of what you hear on Fox News. It was clear that he spends a lot of time watching Fox News. I think that's true of a couple of the justices. I think it may not be true about the sort of more center-right justices, the Chief Justice. I'm not sure about Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. They're kind of new enough. It's, it's a little hard to know. But so your sense of sort of public opinion is obviously colored by the sort of your media diet. So I think that to the extent that they probably, most of them, if not all of them, sort of read the New York Times and mainstream media coverage, I think that that cannot but have some influence on them. I think that they probably all try to limit the degree to which it influences them, but I think that none of them can do so completely, nor should they. So to wrap things up here, the term is over. I think people expected that if Justice Breyer were to retire, we would have received that news this week. Democrats want Breyer to retire so that he can be replaced while Democrats have a majority in the Senate and Joe Biden is in the Oval Office. How do justices respond to that kind of pressure? And what do we expect from Breyer over the next year and a half? I mean, look, so the public statements that he has made have suggest that he thinks it's really important both not to act politically and not to appear to act politically. So I think there is a chance that the sort of chorus 
of cries for his retirement this week or at the end of this term has been counterproductive. I mean, I don't think that ultimately he's going to decide one way or another based on what he hears others sort of urging him to do, but I, but it's possible it's been somewhat counterproductive. Every justice thinks differently about when it's time to go, right? I think that some of them historically have said it's fine <laughs> to decide you prefer to be replaced all else equal by a president whose basic vision views about the law and the country you share. And then I think there are those who suggest that all those kinds of considerations are wholly improper. And I've been surprised to hear Breyer strike that kind of latter note recently. I'm not sure in his heart of hearts if he believes that or if he just thinks it's a moment in which, you know, look, like there's something of a crisis of faith in institutions. And he thinks that it's important that the court remain an institution that the public believes has integrity and acts in a principled fashion. And so for that reason is concerned about at least the optics of departing in the middle of these cries for his departure. On the other hand, you know, like he saw that Justice Ginsburg waited, you know, they were close colleagues, were together for many years, I think saw that she desperately wished not to be replaced by President Trump, and of course was. And so you would think he would take that to heart. I mean, the other thing is justices, sometimes they have a close confidant whom they will sort of ask to give them candid advice about when it's time to go, both from the perspective of the country and the court and their own ability to do the job. You're not always the best position to assess your fitness for a job like Supreme Court justice. I have seen no signs of any kind of decline in Justice Breyer, so I don't think that there's anyone out there saying you can no longer do the job. But that's something that sometimes happens without a whole lot of warning. So so I imagine that those kinds of considerations are at work as well. I mean, it is true. I think we expected if we were going to hear an announcement, there was a good chance that we would hear it on the last day of the term yesterday. But that's not an ironclad rule. We could hear in what remains of this week, we could hear next week, occasionally justices have announced their intent to depart the court within a couple of days after the end of the term. So I wouldn't say that the door has closed this term, but obviously he hasn't told us that he's going yet. And so right now, I think no one is actively expecting to hear from him in the next couple of days, but I think it remains a live possibility. To that point, during the 2020 election, we heard plenty from the left and to some extent from Joe Biden himself about possible reforms or changes to the Supreme Court. So I have some polling here on lifetime appointments and whether there should be a limited term or age limits. That's pretty popular with Americans. So 63% of adults favor term or age limits with only 22% opposed. Meanwhile, packing the Supreme Court, expanding the size of the Supreme Court seems pretty unpopular, right? 38% in favor of 42% opposed. Does it seem like any of those changes or reforms are likely to come during the Joe Biden presidency? I think that many questions about what's possible right now, a lot turns on the filibuster, whether it will remain a requirement to overcome a filibuster in order to get legislation enacted. And you could expand the size of the Supreme Court by ordinary legislation, right? Sort of an interesting thing. It feels like that should require a constitutional amendment, but no, there's nothing in the constitution about the size of the Supreme Court. All you need, and if you know, if a simple majority was enough, then you could tomorrow add some seats to the Supreme Court. Although, as you say, it's not popular in the same way term limits are popular. Term limits are complicated because you probably would need to amend the constitution to impose term limits. Not everybody agrees with that, but they would certainly be vulnerable to constitutional challenge, although there are creative ways you could structure it. You could say you got to limit term, but you remain a Supreme Court justice nominally and you get the salary and you just have a different kind of status. Maybe you sit by designation on the lower courts, but you're not like forced out of the game entirely. Maybe you could do that by statute. It's iffy. But 
amending the constitution, you could certainly do to impose an 18-year, although sometimes people now are talking about even like a 14 or 12-year term for Supreme Court justices if they went into effect, you know, prospectively. You couldn't probably kick out the ones who were already on the court. And we've sort of lost the habit of amending the constitution. It's not a thing we have done much of late. And I am not sure that a term limit amendment is the sort of thing. Now, look, there's obviously, there are fights ongoing right now about the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. So I will not say that as a matter of kind of constitutional culture, constitutional amendment is off the table. But I do think for young people who just haven't seen the Constitution amended in their lifetimes, it begins to feel like something that is a dream, but not a reality that doesn't actually get done. And lots of, you know, democracies amend their constitutions much more frequently than we do. And we have, by design, a very difficult amendment process. So I think that for all of those reasons, expansion would be much more achievable through the ordinary legislative process than term limits. But I think that there would have to be a willingness to expend a lot of political capital. And at the moment, at least, I'm not getting the sense that the Biden administration is interested in doing that. But uh, maybe the decisions in this, particularly in the Section 2 Voting Rights Act case, will change the gravity of that issue. All right. Well, let's leave it there for today. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for having me. Kate Shaw is a professor of law at the Cardozo School of Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. That's a wrap for today. We're going to be off on Monday for July 4th, so expect another podcast on Tuesday of next week. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing and is in the control room alongside our intern Emma Riley. Benton Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch as usual by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. You've got a good use or bad use of polling that you'd like to suggest for us. Do it there. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Happy July 4th. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.